beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark 1.1, that's where we're going to be today. We're going to be looking at uh, that one verse, uh, that one statement. I know some of you may say, preacher, if that's the pace, we're going to be going through Mark. We're going to be in Mark uh, until Jesus comes. We will uh, preach larger passages and portions than that. But there's not a better way uh, to begin to introduce this gospel of Mark uh, other than being able to say the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, uh, the Son of God. Uh, you may say, who is this Mark? Well, Mark's name appears uh, eight different times in the New Testament. And from those eight times that his name appears, we can piece together who this uh, author of the gospel according to Mark is. Some of you may say, well, Mark was a disciple, wasn't he? He was a, an apostle. He was one of the twelve, and Mark was not one of the twelve. Mark was a close associate of Peter. And what does that mean? That means that he hung out with Peter. Uh, a lot of the imagery and the storytelling that Mark records the gospel with comes from the lens or the view of the apostle Peter because he was there oftentimes with Peter. John was Mark's Jewish name and Mark was his Roman name. And uh, he was the son of a Jerusalem widow whose home uh, was, this widow's home was very large and it was oftentimes the meeting place uh, for the believers during the early days of the church. And uh, not only that, Jesus uh, speaks to uh, Mark to uh, go into Jerusalem or to the disciples to go into Jerusalem and to make this upper room uh, available. And so we see that uh, Mark's uh, mother plays an important part uh, in the life of the early church with her hospitality. He, Mark was a cousin of Barnabas. Uh, he had accompanied uh, Paul on their first missionary journey, you'll remember. And then Mark turned back, and that caused no small uh, dissension and stir between uh, Barnabas and Paul. And then later, before uh, Paul ultimately passes there in 2 Timothy, Paul sends for John Mark. He says he's profitable for the ministry, and so uh, Mark was homesick. He was ready to get back home. Uh, he was not doing well on that trip, and so he departed. And then later, Paul said, no, we, we want John Mark to come uh, to us because he's very profitable for the gospel ministry. You may say, Pastor, how is it that you... Uh, pray and you come to a book of Mark and say, man, we're going to plant in the book of Mark for a while. Well, uh, as Mark is writing this, you need to know the historical context of what's going on. And just by the way, let me add uh, by just way of a, a sounding board today or a buffer today, you can never divorce scripture from its original context. And what does that mean? That means you just don't read scripture and then say, well, it doesn't matter what the scripture was saying to the original audience. It always matters what the scripture was saying to the original audience because the author, the Holy Spirit, had a clear intended message for those people then. And it's the message that transcends time, right? The message that, for example, Mark's writing to a Roman audience. He's going to be uh, sending this gospel, presenting this gospel at Rome He's going to circulate it to a bunch of young believers and new believers there in Rome. And what's going on in Rome is really important. Nero is uh, the Roman leader at that time. And Nero is beginning to persecute the church. It's going to wrap, uh, ramp up and escalate in a big way 
uh, once there is a fire there in Rome, the Christians are blamed for that. And then he just goes on this holy terror. And so that is the context in which Mark is pinning this gospel under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, uh, oftentimes uh, side by side with Peter as he's reviewing and looking at uh, the accounts that we have here in these 16 chapters. And so history uh, verifies that Mark is the author of this book, even though Mark just doesn't come out and clearly say, uh, this is the gospel according to Mark, and uh, here's who I am. Uh, there are several references Mark uh, makes in the second person or third person that uh, he alludes to himself in a nameless type of way. And then we know uh, either through other scripture passages or through the history of the early church that all of that pointed to Mark. If this wasn't the first gospel that was written, it was certainly the second gospel that was written. Many believe that this book was written somewhere between 55, 57, and 64. And uh, it's really important for us to know that because it puts us in that right context of what was going on in Rome at that time under Nero. Uh, it was important for Mark to circulate this to those believers in Rome for them to have an idea of who Jesus is and what he had done, the life he had called them to, this radical, obedient discipleship, who he was, and also how he gave his life for them. And in doing that, that was a tremendous model, and it was going to be a source of encouragement to those Roman believers. Here's the way Danny Aiken records that. He said, Mark records with quick movement of scenes, specific events from the life and ministry of Jesus Christ to present the gospel not only to a Roman audience proving that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, but to also provide a pattern of discipleship through the model of the suffering servant, ultimately pointing to his death and resurrection. Mark does not present this comprehensive biography of Christ. His gospel is evangelistic in nature. It's edifying in nature. It's going to grow those who need to grow in Christ. It's evangelistic in nature because we're going to see Jesus touch a ton of people and change a ton of people's lives. And it's just a tremendous blessing to see that. There are three key passages. While all the Word of God is equally important, there are three key passages that help us understand this movement in the gospel according to Mark. And so you have chapters 1 through 8 that deals with Mark presenting Jesus. And don't go there yet, Scott, but uh, you're going to see in chapters 1 through 8 how Mark presents Jesus as this wonderful Son of God. He, he's pointing us to His deity. And then uh, the second section of the book, uh, really you're going to see in chapters 9, 10, uh, and 11, right in that middle section, you're going to see how he focuses on Jesus Christ and how he's focusing on how Christ uh, calls the disciples. And we're going to look at that in detail. And then in uh, chapters 11 through 16, he deals with that Passion Week of our Lord and Savior. Six chapters are devoted to telling us about what the last week of the life of Christ was like. And why is that important? Well, that's all vitally important because Mark's wanting us to see through the deity of Christ comes radical discipleship that is empowered and fueled through, empowered and fueled through the life of Christ. That he's not calling us to a life that's impossible to live. That he's not calling us to something that he did not live, 
but that he's calling us to live the life of Christ. And Jesus is the very empowerment that allows us to do that. That, my brothers and sisters, is grace upon grace. There are three key verses that help us understand that movement. The first is found in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. And the Bible just says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. Mark's book that he writes is all about the gospel. We have it in verse 1, we have it here in verse 14 and 15. You're going to see it over and over again as he uh, presents this Jesus, Jesus as this uh, Jesus who has the power because he is the Son of God, to change human beings' lives. And then that next passage or key verse is verses 17 and 18. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And you'll notice uh, the disciples' response. Immediately they left their nets, and they followed him. So uh, this first verse points us to this wonderful gospel, and the kingdom of God is at hand, and Jesus is coming as this Messiah, the anointed one that Israel had longed for and hoped for, and now we're going to see how he changes people's lives through the power of the gospel. And then we're going to see how he has this ability to call us away from our ordinary lives and make disciples out of us. I want to encourage you and let you know today that these apostles were not finished products when God called them. When God called these men away from their nets and away from their occupations, and he called them to be followers of Jesus. These are ordinary people. The women that followed along were ordinary women, ordinary men that God used in extraordinary ways. So if you're here today and you say, well, preacher, what am I going to learn out of the Gospel of Mark? You're going to see over and over again, especially in those middle chapters, how God takes people just like you and I, who struggle in disobedience, who struggle in sin, and yet God still uses us for his honor and for his glory. And then that last transitional verse is chapter 10, verse 45. And that key verse just simply says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. It's the idea that Jesus came, and uh, as we know, he doesn't, doesn't come as this, a ruling and reigning king during his three and a half years. He comes as this suffering servant, and he's going to model servant lordship and what it means to be a servant leader to his disciples, and he's going to establish his kingdom in a completely, completely different way. And so with that in mind, I want you to look at verse 1 with me, and let's just walk through three distinct phrases uh, together. Uh, the first phrase is, in the beginning, and that's not where we're going to start, but you see it in, in uh, sequential order there. The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Why is it that Mark begins with that clear statement about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because in verses or chapters 1 through 8, he's going to present to you and I as we read through this text together. He was presenting to those new believers at Rome. He was presenting Jesus as this sovereign son of God that points us to the deity. When he uses that phrase, the son of God, 
He does not use that phrase by accident. But he uses that phrase, Jesus as the Son of God, to focus us on the deity of Christ. And how does he do that? In chapters 1 through 8, you're going to see over and over and over again one miracle after another. A matter of fact, Mark moves at breakneck speed helping us see these different miracles. I mean, it's people with withered hands that are healed. It's paralytics who are let down through roofs in chapter 2. It's people who are sick with a fever who are healed. Um, there's miraculous feedings that occur. There are blind peoples whose sight is restored. Uh, there are demonic people who are delivered from their demonic possession and they are freed. There are storms that are ceased. Over and over again, at this kind of pace, Mark goes from one miracle to another miracle to another miracle and to another miracle. Now, can I, uh, can I teach something here that is really important that we understand as we work through these, especially these first seven and eight chapters? If you're really teachable today and you're listening, say amen. The tendency is when you get into the gospel of Mark or you get into any gospel where there's one miracle after another to say, I am so important that God does these miracles for me. And these miracles must still occur today or the Holy Spirit wouldn't occurred, wouldn't have told Mark to record these miracles. And so if I have a broken bone, God can heal that. We would all say, Amen. God is the only one that can not only create a bone that can uh, grow bones, but he's the only one that can restore a broken bone, right? God alone does that. But we cannot make the mistake of thinking the first eight chapters is about us. The first eight chapters is all about God. It's all about Jesus. And Jesus is authenticating his deity and his sonship as the son of God by doing these things that people are going to be amazed at so that they will say I'm not important but that they'll say who can forgive sin but God alone do you understand that today if you understand the difference in those two position, uh, positions say amen see you never see these people saying I'm so important or my faith has been so good or my faith is so weak and God has worked in me uh, because he's chosen to work in me. And the focus is all about the person. Whenever you see this healing occur, and not only the Gospel of Mark, but throughout the old, whole New Testament, one of the things you see is these people jump up and they start leaping and they start praising God and they start pointing to the sovereign Son of God that points us to his deity, his lordship, and really his equality with God the Father and God the Spirit. We're going to see that real clearly, a matter of fact, when we see Jesus come and be baptized of John, and the Holy Spirit descends upon him. As we address that passage of Scripture, we're going to see how God affirms Jesus. And if you say, how did Jesus do that? He's 100% God, but he's 100% man, so how did he do that? He did that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that was within him. And so Mark focuses on the deity of Christ, but Mark focuses on the deity of Christ not only through miracles, but when he uses that term in verse 1, the Son of God, 
he's helping us to know two things. He's not only referring to the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God's Son, in the fact that he is himself the Lord, but another meaning is this. He's saying he is God's perfect son. See, Adam is referred to as one of God's sons. But Adam uh, was the son in the small, uh, cap, uh, in the small uh, sense of the letter S. He was the small son of God. We see that in Luke 3, verse 38. But Adam failed, and Adam sinned, and he didn't lead his wife, and then uh, he tried to blame his wife and accuse his wife, and he wasn't obedient to God's word. And so Adam, being a son of God, he failed. And then the Lord said, well, I'm going to make Israel, under Jacob, I'm going to make Israel the sons of God. And so he called Israel to be the sons of the Lord. But then the Bible describes how God was not only calling them uh, to be his sons, but how they were disobedient to the Lord. Yet Jesus never sinned. He is this final son of God. He's the true firstborn of the Father. He is the son who succeeded where all others had failed. Because of his obedient sonship, listen to this, folks, God is so pleased and he is so honored and he is so blessed to adopt us into his family, those who have uh, professed Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. Why? Because he honors the relationship that he has with his son. And so in a political season, you may ask, is heaven a political place? And I will say to you, it absolutely is a political place because who you know determines whether or not you will get in. And if you know Jesus and Jesus knows you and your sin has been forgiven, you are going to spend eternity with God the Father and you're going to be viewed as this obedient child of God because you've surrendered your life to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And so when he uses this phrase, he's the sovereign son of God that points us to his deity, this son of God, he's reminding us that Jesus is this absolute authority. I'm going to come back to that at the very end of this message. And I'm going to make three or four really clear applicable points for you to hang your hat on and to take away. But what I don't want you to miss right now is don't think that when Mark uses that phrase, Son of God, and he's declaring the deity of Christ, he's going to do it through miracles, and he's going to help us see how Jesus is this perfect or complete Son of God, co-equal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. Don't think that we're just talking theology there. This is much more than head knowledge. There's tremendous implications uh, that flow from the idea that Jesus is this sovereign Son of God. And then in verses 8 through, or chapters 8 through 10, we see Mark presenting Jesus as the suffering servant of man that makes ordinary people like you and I into disciples. That phrase, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and the focus there is on Jesus Christ. It's the idea that God is with us. The name Christ, or the title Christ, is the Messiah or the anointed one of Israel. He is the one that Israel had longed for. He is the one that they had hoped for. Mark is going to help those Romans understand that uh, in Jesus Christ, 
He is the fulfillment of all Old Testament promises that he had ever made to the nation of Israel. And not only to the nation of Israel, but also to the Gentiles as well. Jesus is this suffering servant of man that makes ordinary people into disciples. What a tremendous blessing that's going to be as we start to walk through this gospel together. And we see Jesus as this servant king who has the power to take sinners like you and I, like those early disciples, and turn them into fruit-bearing disciples. It's the gospel of Mark that has a focus not only on Jesus, but it has this tremendous focus on Jesus and his disciples. Why is that important for you and I? Because the Holy Spirit is going to use Mark's gospel to help us realize God is with us, he's the anointed one, he's the Messiah, and he has this ability to grow us and stretch us and change us and mature us day by day, month by month. Now, some of you have heard that your whole life, but some of you don't believe that. Some of us struggle with the same sin that we struggled with last year or 10 years ago or 20 years ago, and in the fact that you're still persevering and trusting the gospel to someday give you victory over that is a tremendous testimony to God's grace at work in your heart and life. But my brothers and sisters, there's one step further in that discipleship And it is this, that God can give you victory over those strongholds in your life. Oftentimes, he will break us in a spiritual way to bless us in a spiritual way and give us victory. So one of the things that that Mark does is the Holy Spirit allows him just to focus a lot on Jesus' interaction with Peter. And so we have this Tremendous confession that Peter makes in chapter 8 in response, to, um, in response to Jesus asking, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the, the Son of God. And then we see Peter later denying Jesus after him saying to Jesus, I'll never deny you, I'll never, I'll never uh, turn away from you. And then he does that. And then we see how the Spirit of God convicts Peter and begins to work in Peter, and ultimately makes Peter the leader or the elder of the first church in Jerusalem. And so what is all that to say? It is to say that the Holy Spirit, one verse after another, especially in chapters 8, 9, and 10, is going to reveal to you and I how God uses broken vessels for his glory and honor. So if you're here today and you would say, Uh, Pastor, there's some things in my life I think that just uh, have caused me to forfeit my uh, position in Christ or forfeit my uh, ability to serve the Lord. I want to say to you, that is absolute a lie from the devil. God takes broken vessels like me, like you, and he uses us for his glory and his honor. If you believe that this morning, say amen. He's going to do that as he shows us how he feeds the 4,000. He's going to do that as he talks to uh, the disciples about the Pharisee's sin and about leaven. He's going to do that through this confession and discussion with the disciples, particularly Peter, as they're walking and they're talking. And he asks, who do men say that I am? 
He's going to do that on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's going to allow three of those apostles to get a glimpse of how he is the fulfillment of the Old Testament and how he is God's chosen son, how he is the Messiah. He's going to do that by teaching on marriage and divorce. He's going to grow us and lead us as a suffering servant. He's going to take us from ordinary people and make us into disciples as he teaches about eternal destruction in a place called hell. He's going to talk to us about how God views greatness as Peter and John banter back and forth about who's the greatest and Lord, will you allow us to have this prestigious seat at the foot uh, or at the kingdom when you establish your kingdom. So he's going to talk to us about how God views greatness. He's going to teach as he taught those disciples about the wrong view of riches versus the right view of riches. Uh, there's not anything wrong with wealth or riches. It's how we view wealth or riches. If you understand that, nod at me like this, right? And so uh, I would say to you, he's going to teach us all of those things. And he's going to teach us in a really important uh, chapter, a, a long, pretty long uh, chapter about how we are to have childlike faith, how we are to approach the Lord with this uh, childlike obedience just to take him at his word and as we do that, how God just grows us as we approach him and interact with him as obedient children. Preacher, Jesus is a suffering servant. Did he do that to model what being a disciple is all about? He absolutely does. Because Jesus not only serves us as this son of God, not only does he serve us as this suffering servant, but he serves us as this disciple who is obedient to the Father's will. He came to do the will of the Father. And so we're going to see in the humanity of Christ him wrestling through that when we get to uh, the garden. We're going to see him wanting to do what the Father had set out for him to do. And so Jesus is this wonderful example to us of how Jesus as his servant takes ordinary people like the disciples, like you and I, and uses us and changes us and makes us into fruit-bearing vessels of honor. Your life, listen to this, your life today has been created and is valuable because God has chosen to create you and to use you as this wonderful vessel of honor. And it's hard to feel like that sometimes when you're just doing life, isn't it? When you're married to a knucklehead, right? Don't anybody say amen? You just think, man, I don't know about this marriage. or Why does this guy do this, you know? Why, why does he or she act like this? When you're raising just a whole house full of kids and you got one you're trying to teach to drive, you got one trying to learn how to ride a tricycle and you got them at all ages in between and you're just trying to figure out how in the world do I do this life and survive? And you're thinking to yourself, I'm just not this believer that I'm supposed to be. Maybe life is supposed to be easier than this. And in the midst of all of that daily struggle and that daily just doing life, God's going to show us through the Holy Spirit using Mark how God takes fumbling and bumbling and struggling men and women and cleans them up, and pats them on the back, and uses them for his glory and honor.
Can I encourage you today? If I can, say amen. That's about 70 of y'all. If, if I can encourage you today, say amen. Listen to this statement. Evie Hill said, God does not make any junk. I've written this poem I talked to you about a few weeks ago for Annie. It's just about done. It's, I mean, if I can get one more word there fixed up, it's going to be just right. But really, it's just about when she was born in Psalm 139, and I'm just laying those things side by side and trying to mesh them together. And when Evie Hill was saying, God does not make any junk, he who knew you before he formed you, he who allows you to hear the gospel and saves you by his grace and mercy, he who has created you for all eternity, he loves you and he will never let you go. You are valuable not because of the way you look or not because of the things you do or not because of the family that you were born into or not because of the place that you live. You're valuable because God set his affection upon you. And when he set his affection on you, how can we not but be the people that God wants us to be? God wants you to know through this gospel of Mark that he doesn't make junk and he has set you out to be this wonderful disciple, this vessel of honor, and he is going to do it in you. Aren't you glad that God is not through with us yet? If you're thankful for that, would you say amen? And then lastly, in chapters 11 through 16, the Holy Spirit presents Jesus as the sacrificial Savior the sacrificial Savior of the world that forgives our sin by his death. That phrase, the beginning of the gospel. The beginning of the gospel. The beginning. God uses Mark to state this tremendous fact. A matter of fact, this is one reason that people give this book an earlier writing and they believe that Matthew and Luke pull from Mark's gospel quite a bit. One of the reasons that scholars believe that is because he, like John, but in a different way from John, pulls upon Genesis 1-1, and he lets us know that Jesus has come, the gospel of God has come, and this gospel is of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and it is a new beginning. He says it's the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What does that mean? It means this, that God is doing a new work that would be clearly seen through the new covenant we have with Christ through grace. It's the idea that God was about to lead people through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus into a new covenant, a living covenant, that Christ has made available for us, that he has ratified, that he has sealed, that he has guaranteed by the shedding of his blood on the cross. And so when we call upon Christ and we say, yes, I want to repent of my sin. Yes, Lord, I believe you're calling me to have a relationship with you and to believe you and to trust you. We enter into this agreement, this covenant that is sealed and ratified by the blood of Jesus. And when that occurs in our hearts and lives, Mark is proclaiming, this is the beginning. A beginning of a new time. 
No longer are we going to be bound by failing the Old Testament law. So for you that are here today and you are just bound by trying to live according to law rather than grace, I want to say to you, you're misapplying the law. The law is our taskmaster. The law is our tutor. It, it causes us to constantly look at God's standard. It, con- it causes us to look at the holiness of God and to say, I can't get there. I can't get there. So if you're here and you are a do-gooder, you need to quit. You say, are you telling the people of God to quit doing good? You need to quit doing good in your own energy of the flesh. And you need to surrender that and say, there is one who has done perfectly, and his name is Jesus, and I can put all of my faith, all of my trust in him because he is the fulfillment of that Old Testament law And as Jesus lives his life in me and through me, now I can properly love God and love others and honor my parents and not steal and not lie. I can now do it because I am walking in Christ. If you've got it, say amen. So this beginning of the gospel, what is the gospel? Mark is going to show us over and over again that it is the good news of the fulfillment of God's promises. And really throughout the whole book of Mark, not only there in chapters 11 through 16, but really in the the whole book of Mark, uh, you're going to see how he shows us how Jesus fulfills and transforms all of Israel's hope that was found in the Old Testament, especially the hope for a coming king and a Messiah, how Jesus is the fulfillment of that. The Lord is going to show us that Jesus alone has the power to forgive us of our sins and place us in right standing with God the Father through his work on the cross. I don't know about you, but I need that. I need to be reminded of that week in and week out. That it's not my effort or merit or work that causes me to be right with the Lord. It is uh, God's work of grace and mercy allowing Jesus to die on the cross for our sins And Jesus is our representative. He is our advocate who's making intercession for us. So what are the practical implications of these three three thoughts and ideas that these, these movements that we see Mark write? That he's the sacrificial savior, Jesus is, of the world that forgives us of our sin by his death. That he's the suffering servant of man that makes ordinary people into disciples. And that he is the sovereign son of God that points us to his deity. What practical application is there for us? I want to invite you to stand to your feet. uh, Because you all get excited. And when you get excited, you're more apt to listen. But don't bolt for the doors. We're not done yet. Listen to this. The first practical application in the here and now for us when we begin to read the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and the gospel of Christ is unfolded to us from the pen of Mark through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're going to realize that many of us in this place uh, fight against the temptation, a, a strong cultural society temptation, to be nominal and inclusive. You're told not to be a radical Christian. 
You're told not to get out there on the deep end. What's crazy about that is I was at that championship game on Friday night when the Trojans were playing uh, Allen County, Scottsville. The only problem with that is y'all are radical there. Y'all are radical when the Cats are beating Louisville. If we win the championship, March Madness, y'all are going to be radical for that. I've, I've come to learn you become pretty radical when you get a granddaughter born to you. Pretty radical. Do you know that I about put up a video today? And I thought, I can't do that. This is not about Annie. This is about Jesus, right? You can become pretty radical when the Lord just blesses you with those good things. But concerning our faith and being committed Christians, the culture shouts, don't be like that. If you're like that, you're going to somehow be naive or uninformed or you're not going to be a good contributing person to American culture and society. And you're under that temptation to be inclusive, therefore. Jesus can't be the only way He's just one way. Surely the senators from Minnesota or senator from Minnesota, surely her God is just as real as your God and her Savior is just as real as your Savior. And I want to go on the record and say, Muhammad is not a Savior. Islam is a false religion that there is no hope. And I've had multiple Muslims live in my home and when I've shared the hope of the gospel with them, I saw two of the first ones have tears in their eyes and say, Islam teaches no such hope. But there is hope in Christ. So what does this book of Mark have to do with us today? Well, we need to be crystal clear concerning who Christ is and what it looks like to follow him. And my brothers and sisters, let me encourage you, especially my young brothers and sisters who are here. If you want to be counter-cultural and you want to live out on the edge and you want to be a revolutionary, commit your life to Christ. Because Christ will take you and he will use you in unprecedented ways. He will change your life. He'll change people's lives around you and he will do with you what only he can do with you. That is the first practical application. The book of Mark is going to help us through the power of the Holy Spirit according to the written word. It's going to help us to avoid nominalism and being inclusive as we see how Jesus alone can heal and restore and change people's lives. Here's the second thing. We're going to understand and be face to face and I mean it's coming quick. I mean, it, in chapter 1, it starts. We're going to come face to face with the absolute authority of God. Can I just talk to you for about 60 seconds? I don't like having to yield to authority. Do any of you? My fleshly sinful nature wants to be the authority. It does not want to yield to authority, right? However, we come face to face verse after verse, chapter after chapter, with this divine Jesus 
who have complete authority. And we're going to see him submit to his father's will. We're going to see him submit and lay down his life on a cross. We're going to see him do all sorts of servant things to demonstrate to us how the least among us can be the greatest and how the first among us will be last. There's something wonderful when we have to interact with this absolute authority of Christ. And it, it's going to show us, if you say, I don't like authority, preacher, I, I don't know if I'm going to want to come to this series. Yes, you do, and here's why. Because the very authority of Christ that caused us to bow is the very authority and power of Christ that holds us when we fail. Are, are y'all tracking with me? The very authority, the deity that causes us to bow is the same authority and power that picks us up when we fail. That's why we interact and give our lives to Christ and, and seek his word. And then last but not least, the practical application is if what's true in Mark's gospel, what we read, and it's all true, but the truth that we read in Mark's gospel concerning Christ's authority applies in his area of discipleship. So what does that mean? It means that Mark presents the task of being a disciple as something that's really overwhelming. It's really a, a tremendous task. But he reminds us that Jesus is able to do in us what we can't do on our own and through the frequent failures that you and I have, just like the apostles had, just like the disciples had, that Jesus does not demand, listen to this, Jesus does not demand perfect faith. And if you're here today and you're like your pastor and sometimes you try to live under that idea of that my faith somehow needs to be perfect for it to be pleasing to the Lord. That is not what you see in this gospel. What you see in this gospel is a persevering faith. And what causes us to persevere is the very fact that while we fall, while we, while we fail, while we miss the mark, it is this Jesus that not only holds on to us, but that puts us back to work for his honor and glory. And day by day, trial by trial, temptation by temptation, God creates and makes in us an overcoming faithful believer that perseveres. But watch this. Who is never perfect in our flesh. If you understand that, say amen. I am so encouraged. I think I could preach for two or three more hours on this subject. I just don't have the ability to hold you that long. But listen to me today. Will you ask God right now? God, I want to recognize you as the absolute authority. You are the son of God. And Lord, I want you to take this gospel as we unpack it. And Lord, whether you give me this one sermon or you give us week after week of being able to come in and hear your word, God, grow me as this fruit-bearing disciple. Lord, help me to understand that, that you laying down your life was not just an act that is able to forgive me of my sin while it starts there, 
It is also the power that gives you a resurrected life in Christ. Oh, what a wonderful blessing we have in the Lord. Will you bow your heads and close your eyes? Anyone here would say, Preacher, I really need to come face to face with the gospel because there's just sin issues in my life. Some are ongoing, some are just temporary, but it just seems like there's more sin in my life that I know is pleasing to the Lord, and I want God to deal with my sin. How many of you would like your pastor raise your hand and say, Oh, God, work in me. How many of you would do that? I want to pray for you. Yeah? How many of you would say, I need to grow as, my, as a disciple of the Lord. I want to see and hear and learn how he interacts with these disciples and these apostles and how he leads them and, and makes them uh, faithful, fruitful believers. How many of you would say, I really need to grow in my discipleship? Would you raise a hand? Yeah, me too. And then how many of you would say, you know, I just need to really focus more and more, not just because it's coming Easter season, but I need to understand what the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ appropriated in my life looks like. The crucified, risen Savior at work in me. I need to know what that looks like, and I need to depend on his finished work. How many of you would raise your hand and say, man, I do, I need to... I need to decrease that he might increase in me. Yeah. Well, I want to encourage you this morning. I want to invite you to come. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Justin's going to lead us in a hymn of invitation. And if you want to come and pray, I want to encourage you to do that. If you want to come and pray for uh, your church leaders, they're in the uh, Connect Guide. There are five, I think, different ways you can pray for us. We would love for you to do that. If you want to come pray for yourself or pray for a family member or a friend, I want to encourage you to do that. What a great season. Weather's going to start breaking, Lord willing. Easter's going to be coming in about six weeks. What a great time to say, hey, we're starting this new series of church. Would you come and let's walk through this gospel of Mark together. God, grow us. Grow us by your grace. Lord, will you make us fruit-bearing disciples for your honor and glory. Thank you, God, that what you call us to is not perfection, but God, to perseverance. And Lord, that it is you that allows us to persevere. And so, Lord, I pray that you will accomplish that in and through our hearts and lives. Thank you for being this absolute sovereign son of God who demonstrates his deity in such a clear way throughout this gospel. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to bow to your authority that we would recognize that it's you alone who restores and heals and calms the storms of life. And God, it's you who uh, feeds us when we're hungry and God sets us on a straight path when we're lost. And God, it's you and your authority that you call us to bow before, knowing, Lord, it's that same authority that keeps us and holds us when we fall. And then, Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand what the Christian life is all about. That, Lord, you would help us to appropriate, uh, God, the life of Christ daily, even as Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. 
And the life that I now live, I no longer live in the flesh, but I live according to the Son of God. God, work in us today. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Lift your voices to the Lord. If you want to come and pray, the Lord's leading you to do that. We want to do that. Will you come?